And I think it's one of the reasons that my definition of success for myself keeps is a dangling carrot. And I almost won't even allow myself to say that I have reached the success because I am absolutely 100% making a living writing for film and television. Additional things that I kind of collected over the years that I wanted to be is I like to be respected by my peers. I would like my peers to say, I've seen your work and your work is amazing. And for that to be genuine. And I do get that. That feels like a success. Hey, this is Jason Tonioli. I'm a piano player that grew up believing it wasn't possible to earn a living and support a family with music. I've proven that idea was wrong and have met hundreds of other people who have found success with their music. This podcast features stories of musicians who have found their own personal version of success and fulfillment in both music and life. This podcast is meant to inspire musicians and help them believe in their abilities and motivate them to share their talents with others. This is the Successful Musicians Podcast. Well, welcome to the podcast. Today, our special guest is Sherry Chung, and she is a composer who has done all kinds of different film stuff. And Sherry, as I've been researching you, I've just been impressed and then I dove into some of your music and was listening and I had about two, three hours worth of awesome music that I listened to. So you've done things for CBS, HBO. Right now, it says some of the projects you probably don't even have posted on your website, but you've done an amazing job with orchestrations. You've worked with some amazing people. I know you went through the Sundance Film Music program that they had as well. And so I probably just did a terrible job of introducing you, but welcome and I'll let you fill in the blanks a little bit. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me, Jason. So it's a pleasure. It's great. And I know you're doing such really great work on the podcast and for your listeners. So I'm happy to be here. I'm honored. And hopefully there's something that I say that's helpful in some way. Yeah. Well, let's kind of rewind back. I love hearing kind of the journey that the musicians take to get to wherever they are today. I think there's so many kids out there and young people that think, oh, I want to be in the music industry. And there's just so many different directions that people can go. And I have no doubt that you've got quite the path. I know you've been to several different schools and probably grew up loving to play the piano as a kid and never had to fight with mom to practice, right? Actually, it's really true. It really is. So I was five years old and wanted to play piano. I begged my mom for lessons. She's like, well, that's nice, honey. I mean, I think it was around four. I started asking her. And we did have a piano and she'd play was mainly like for church stuff, really just chill, you know, serviceable kind of things. I just really wanted to play. And I just kind of kept asking her for lessons. And finally, she's like, okay, we'll try it out. We'll do so. So I think I forget who my first teacher was, but it was some, I think it was just the music teacher at school or something when it's grade or whatever age you are when you're five or sorry, whatever grade you're in when you're five. But yeah, I was one of the kids that just, I just practiced all the time. I loved it. I would practice before school at five in the morning. I would practice when I come home. I really, really loved it. So I know I did not actually have to fight <laughs> with my parents. Well, you were a much better student than I was. I was not that kid. I was the exact opposite. So <laughs> when you were a kid, so did you come up kind of the classical path and you were learning a lot of classical music or did you what other? Yeah, no, for sure. Like I said, I didn't think I know it, knew it at the time, but I really did want to play. I was super into technique. I was super into like playing fast, but playing well fast. And I, I really, really wanted to like that, that kind of thing. So my parents teachers were like, oh yeah, well, we're going to do classical training because that's where you get the most technique from. I grew up playing, studying that kind of music. And sort of in tandem, I was also involved in the church in terms of the music. We had a lot of music at, at the churches that I went to. And so I would play the piano for like the choruses or the choirs, or I would play in bands. I also played trumpet very poorly. But I would do that in like in some of our brass band stuff. And I would also sing. So I was, I was, there was lots of ways to sort of apply what I was learning, which I think is actually probably what gives me the, my most stable part of the background, because I, I was going to a lot of band camps, a lot of music camps in the summertime. And I was involved even in, in schooling in choruses growing up. And I would play in the pit orchestra for musicals and for concerts. And I would just be involved in so much of music that 
I was learning the things and I was applying them right away. So I was just heavily involved in that. I went out right to it because it wasn't that far off. It was about 12 or 13 where I saw the movie, the film, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. And it has an amazing score by Michael Kamen. And of course, I had seen movies before and I'd experienced lots of music before. But this was the film where I watched this and I'm like, it just kind of blew me away. The kind of storytelling in that music, like whatever the music was doing to whatever the picture was going on in the picture, just really moved me. It was really arresting. And I was just really stunned and super inspired. And I was like, and that was the moment I was like, I want to do that. That's what I want to do. That soundtrack was my first soundtrack I ever bought. It was also my first compact disc. And when compact discs were very new, <laughs> it was, I don't know if they were very new, but they were very new to me. It was not something that they were still very expensive and not something that was just super easily gettable. So of course, in true, those kinds of those years, in true form, you immediately record it onto a cassette so you can take it over. Because I don't think I had a Discman at the time. I only had Walkman. So I made sure that I had it in all the different ways to play it. But yeah, so it was like that score. But again, you're 12, 13, 14. Like, what are you really doing at that point? And my mom, again, was like, well, that's nice. That's really nice. That's really, you know, but we didn't really know what to do with that. And so at the same time, it was like, you know, back in those days, the internet wasn't then what it is now. You couldn't Google search anything. You couldn't YouTube video. You couldn't educate yourself in that way, in the way that you can do it. Yes, you have libraries. You know what those are, kids? We go to libraries. We went, like, I would go to the school libraries and I would check out the scores and listen to the tapes. And most of the time you had to stay there and listen to them because you couldn't take out the score and the thing. So there's all kinds of ways to learn about it then, but there wasn't a whole lot of resources to teach me what to do or where to go or how to do the film scoring thing. And everything my family and we had known about it was just like, this is just a really difficult industry. Like you bet you got to really be prepared. It's just a really, really difficult industry, but no one ever really could tell me why. But in any case, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but that's... Well, I'm just thinking, so with that Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, I can remember I was in seventh grade and I think I still remember it. And the only music you could find for it was the Brian Adams, Everything You Do, I Do It For You song that you might find at the piano store. And that, heaven forbid, you, there's no YouTube or somewhere to find the actual scores for the film. We really wanted to listen to it. Yeah, I'd go to the music stores and for the sheet music for piano. And I would just, and my mom, bless her heart, she would just buy all the singles. Like it was just sort of like maybe two bucks each or the really expensive ones were like $4 each. So you could get less of those. You get this sheet music, you get this piano music and you go home and you play it. I have to say though, I was always disappointed because you could tell as a pianist, you could tell the arrangements that were done. You could tell the people who had done the arrangements if they were truly pianists or if they were more guitarists, because some of these were like, but this is ridiculous. This isn't playable. And that's when I started also just like teaching myself the chords and saying, okay, screw the, screw the, the piano reading. I mean, I could obviously read music, but I was like, this is just too difficult because it was not a pianistically written. And I'm, by the way, I don't know for sure in terms of that particular arrangement. I'm just saying a lot of times I go and I would, so that's, so that's when I started just kind of working on the chords myself playing a little bit cross between ear, like by reading the music, by reading the chords and figuring it out and just kind of doing that. And then I would just sing the song. So that's a lot of the start of like where I became the singer songwriter or the person who's able to sing and play at the same time. It just interested me. And then from there, it was like, I did get creative and I was like, okay, I want, I think I want to write songs. My lyrics were always super, super stupid, but a lot of times I wouldn't even write the lyrics. It was just more like doing like vowel sound and things that vowel sounds that more rhymed because to me, it was more about getting the thing written in my head, you know, the melody and the harmony and the structure and all that kind of thing. But I'm like totally jumping around in this. But now that I'm saying it's like, even just like going to those music stores and doing that, you get a sense for how music works. You get a sense for how songs work. And then studying more scores, you kind of realize that studying more music that's not song form, you start to realize, wow, there really is a difference between 
this kind of music in classical world, this kind of music in technical classical or a ballet or a concerto or a song or a movie score. There's all different forms or different ways to do it. But that was kind of the start of all this. Everything just really interested me. But it was also a little frustrating. I think a lot of it just came about. So that's where I kind of just filled in my own blanks, if you will, or finished the sentences myself. (laughs) I still remember sitting with my cassette tapes. I'm that old too. We're that young. Look, this is the, no, we're that, we're this we're is, that young. This is quality. This is quality <laughs> age here. What I think the cool thing was coming up through that evolution of the music is you had, I mean, virtual instrument libraries didn't exist. I mean, there, you might find a keyboard that had a really lousy orchestra sound that you could push on it. But I think I went in for about 15 years, was in search for a decent orchestra, you know, symphony sound to put with my piano. And I just was never happy because you'd hear it on the movies. And I wanted that as a musician and it just wasn't available. It's been awesome to see how, you know, last five, 10 years, how much that has evolved. I mean, to your point though, and I don't, I don't want to jump cut too far, but I'll, but I'll just say this. So just real quick. So I decided to go to school for composition and theory. There were very, very few programs that were teaching film composition. One of them was in Berkeley and Boston, which I did get into, but I couldn't go. I couldn't afford it. So that was the only one that I really, really knew about or one that was like possibly feasible and tangible to go to. So I decided to go for composition and theory, which gave me the whole background and good foundation. But to your point, I felt the same way because the school that I went to at the time, they were just starting out their music technology classes and curriculum. So they were just getting into Sibelius and Finale. They were just getting into uh, Logic and on all of those and adult, like that, that kind of thing. So I was sort of trying to learn them. But it was really frustrating because no one where I was really knew how to teach it. I don't have that mind where I just go immediately towards that. So I was still pencil paper because we were still being taught pencil paper while we were sort of in tandem all trying to learn what this music. And again, I think other schools were a bit more advanced and they were just a little further down the road. This is not the school that I went to, but it was frustrating because my pencil paper work was much slower than what my brain was writing. And so I found it really frustrating and I had I found it difficult to keep all of these ideas in my head because when you're writing for a group of people, an ensemble, the whole reduction, the score reduction thing was something that I was, again, I was learning all of it in tandem. And it was like, I wasn't able to really employ anything yet that was working as fast as my brain was. My skill level wasn't quite there. I guess what I'm saying is when I finally got more into, into the technology, which was after I graduated and I just taught it myself and I learned it myself. And then as new things progressed and new things came out and I would just acquire and teach myself. Then finally I did go to graduate school for specifically film and television composing. And that's when I really took all those classes and learned all of those things and learned even more. And that's when I felt like, oh, I can finally write the music that is in my head and represent the music and demonstrate the music that's actually in my head. So for me, it was like, again, while I grew up on pencil paper, I kind of knew that that wasn't for me. It just wasn't for me. I can do it, but it was never something that I could do as fast as the ideas were coming to me. So I feel like I straddled that was like a really good time for me where it was like I was learning the fundamentals and I was learning the hard way, (laughs) the very analog way, which I think was good. But technology was actually really what helped me kind of blossom into an actual, like something that I could actually really, really use and could sort of match the speed which I was wanting to create. You wanted to do it. I'm curious because I grew up writing on paper. I still remember in the high school, it was about my junior or senior year, they had a computer that was hidden in this little office and they'd been given a, it was a free student license of Finale, but nobody knew how to use it. What version was it? Because I had the three, the quarter inch floppy thing. I want to say we were at a three and a half. We're not five and a quarters yet. So it was 
There's no three and a half. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think it's literally, and I still have it, by the way. I should take a picture of it. I still have my copy of Finale. It was so clunky. It was so difficult to use. I'd written stuff out on paper, but if you didn't have a piano there, to, you had to have it perfect to go and then click every single thing in. And I'm, I'm curious your opinion on this. In writing stuff out on my note on paper, or I use an iPad now, I find that I put more thought into each note. And rather than just kind of playing a whole bunch of, you know, making it thicker where it sometimes has, I feel like sometimes music gets a little bit clunky when you, I don't call it, even call it lazy, when there's so many notes that they think it's going to sound good. But if you'll just strip it back, sometimes the more thought I put into that writing out one or two notes is better than when I do it on Finale, when I can just do it the easy way. I think you'll get found out real fast how you learned orchestration. Did you learn it on a computer or did you learn, not you, but like did, did one learn it on a computer or did one learn it actual with like working with the sound and actually writing it out or I just say writing it out, but just really understanding orchestra and ensemble. Because again, I sort of straddled that world where it was like I was learning real or proper orchestration, the very stuffy formal way. Then I also kind of filled in a lot of gaps for myself using the computer. And there's a danger in that because when you start to take your music to a live orchestra and you're just like, why does this sound like straight ass? Like, why does this sound really, really, really bad? Why, why can't and, they play that? Exactly. Know, the way I wrote it. Well, here in LA with these musicians, they'll make anything sound good. So if it doesn't sound good to your ears, that's on you. That's your writing or your orchestration. And that's to your point. I mean, I think that's a really, really important thing. If you're going to write not even just orchestrally, if you're going to write with live musicians at all, or even not even, because I feel like it also teaches you about frequency range, that kind of thing. But yeah, it's whether or not you're writing it on paper. I mean, now to answer your question though, I had to make sure that I'm learning it. I'll write things in, but as I'm writing it, I also, because I know the orchestra, because I know the theory of it and the science, if you, I'm not a scientist at all or a math person, but the idea of the physics behind music and frequency ranges and how things, certain things sound muddy and I, and I understand how to do to work the orchestra because I learned that way. I don't fall into those traps, but I have fallen in those traps in the past. And I know that composers who are just newer composers definitely 100% are falling in those traps. I see it all the time. You know, I, you know, and again, it's like you see, you know, it's like if I'm giving not a lesson, but if I'm listening to someone's music that's, you know, in a panel that I've given or I'm teaching you know, I'm a guest speaker or guest teacher or something at some of the NYU or USC or anything. And you, you hear their music and you see it and you're just like, oh yeah, I can tell that you're still learning that part. And we're all learning. So it's not like oh, yeah. life, I'm not learning about it. I don't mean to sound so heady about it, but in my line of work, it's a real thing to think about because when you take that to an orchestra, it's not going to sound right if you don't really understand how the orchestra works and how those instruments are really supposed to be used. So in avoiding those traps, so say you're one of those newer composers, how does one get the feedback with, I mean, is there support groups? Is there mentoring groups that you people are signing up for? I mean, just, I'm curious where somebody could find that. Well, for one, study scores, like study scores, get the music. You can, get, you can get it anywhere. You can get the scores for free. You can PDF or something like that. The study the great, start small. And here's, here's my other thing. Start with a quartet, start with studying the quartet and start with writing for a quartet. Cause that's when you get like your counterpoint, your harmony, your one-to-one, like all those, all those things. But even if you don't know all that stuff, which you don't have to know it, I think it makes you a stronger foundation if you do, but you start with a quartet and see if you can get, if you know friends who, if you know two violinists and a violist and a cellist, get them together and ask them if like, Hey, can you guys, you play this and then let's work together. If you got friends, it'll do that. Because if you mess up a quartet, I'll say it in a positive way. If you understand how to write for a quartet, if you understand four part harmony and four part work, four part music, 
you'll do, you'll be just fine in an orchestral setting, you know, kind of thing. I mean, there's a lot more to learn. What do you do with the woodwinds? You know, all that kind of thing. But it's, I think the best way to learn it, the feedback, unfortunately, however you want to look at the best way to do it is by doing it in front of other, by live musicians, you know what I'm saying? And getting their feedback and getting them to talk to you and say, Hey, like, this is what work with an orchestrator, work with somebody who actually really like does this as a job and orchestrates music and looks at your thing and can say, Hey, listen, this is where you're going to run into like this color isn't going to sound the way you think it is because of X, Y, Z, or this rhythm that you have, there is not really going to cut through because it's under supported or because you have another rhythm hanging on in the same area and the same frequency. So don't have like your double basses doing something while you have your tubas doing something else if they're in the same frequency range. So that's all orchestration. That's not even really necessarily writing music per se. The way I write music is I'm also orchestrating at the same time because I'm writing coloristically as well. But all I'm saying is I'm throwing a lot at your listeners right now. But I guess I'm saying it to answer your question. Yeah, the, the support group would be the professionals that play the instruments. So the musicians that play the instruments, they'll give you feedback. They'll, hear this, they'll give you feedback on their specific instrument. So if you don't know how to write for French horn and you play up, do a French horn part and they play it, they'll say, wow, this is a little out of range, but you could drop it down the octave or you could do, and you can kind of experiment and you can hear it. That's going to help you with individual instruments. Then when you get to a group, like I said, start with a quartet or start with who you have. If you've got a friend that plays a clarinet and a friend that plays tuba, oh my gosh, that just sounds like hilarious time right there. Write something for them. Write something for the two of them to play together. You would be really surprised how that will influence and teach you for when you write for someone else. Guessing that if you even rewind back the clock before you were doing stuff with orchestra, you said you were doing like the old church hymns. My guess is you probably, I mean, a lot of these old classic public domain songs are master classes on some of that harmony and how to, you know, yeah. it simplifies it out at such a level that you really can't understand it better, I think. Yeah, like SATB, four-part mm-hmm. harmony right there. So you can just learn it with the voices. It's the same thing. And then it's it's really the same thing. And then my church had a brass band. I was learning all of it through brass. It's such an interesting color. And then again, going into school with choir, I didn't really play an orchestra because I didn't play any string instruments. But then going into composition theory as an undergrad, as a degree, what was cool about that is I was taking all of the major families of instruments. I was learning them myself. So we're all like these college age kids who were like playing clarinet. (laughs) It sounds really, really bad, but we're learning about the instrument and what the ranges are and what that's all about. And so back then, totally in the church, we had contemporary stuff going as well, but still a hundred percent. I think that I consider myself a composer first, and then I'm a film and TV composer because that's an entirely separate skill set. Entirely. It's separate. You don't have to write for concert world in order to be a successful film composer. And you don't have to be a film composer to be successful in any other thing. I honestly, I think that there's just so much, there's an added layer of craziness once you get into the film scoring part of it. For sure. I'm curious, kind of your definition, as you look back on all of the different things, projects you've done and worked with a lot of people, what would you call success or a successful musician? What does success mean to you? And it changes. It's so interesting. And I say this a lot to people too, because they'll say, well, what? I mean, I tell them it's for me, it was, I want to write music for television and film. I was already doing that before I even went to school. I wasn't doing it very well. And the films weren't that great. <laughs> but once I realized I started doing that, I was like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. What I really mean, my idea of success is really, I want there to be, I want them to be good films or I want them to be films that people have seen. Oh, okay. 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 So then you get there and you're like, okay, cool. I'm working on this thing and people have actually seen it or it's played at a festival or something. And then I was like, no, 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 that's not what it is. And I kept changing it. But then and honestly, it became, if I could make a living first starting out, just doing anything in music, I just want to make a living doing anything in music whatsoever. So for a while it was piano teaching. I was orchestrating for people. I was an assistant to a lead composer. 
I was jumping on one of those like music preparation teams. So that, that would be like when music is going to go to an orchestra. Sometimes there's like what's called a copy office and then a composer will just send their music to this copy office and they make it into a beautiful piece of score paper and music and the sheet music and scores and they it's printed and taped and sent to the stage and there it's amazing. I would jump on those teams and I'd do some proofreading. As long as I stayed in music, to me, that was what it was. And, and I was doing some composing, but it mainly wasn't, comp- I wasn't making enough money just for the composing. So my idea of success was just that. I just, I really want to stay in music and make sure that I'm making a living on that. And then my idea of success became, now I want to be just like film and television scoring or or media, visual scoring. My guess is that path to get there, all of those other things that you did along the way, even down to the piano teacher, that all added and made it easier for you to, you know, have opportunities 10, 20 years later. Now that you knew somebody that worked with the copy office or whatever, you put in the time and you were a 20-year overnight success or more than that even, for all we know, if you were starting. And that's what's really interesting because for me as a musician and as a composer, it wasn't composing on my entire life, but I was working on the skill of music and the practice of music and the profession of music since I was five. I mean, doctors don't even train that long, okay? You know what I'm saying? I mean, they, do, they have to train a long time and for good reason. But it's interesting. I would say now that I think it's also difficult for any one of us, or it is for me anyway, to say that I'm successful. And I think that's one of the reasons that my definition of success for myself keeps is a dangling carrot. And I almost won't even allow myself to say that I have reached the success because I am absolutely 100% making a living writing for film and television at additional things that I kind of collected over the years that I wanted to be is I'd like to be respected by my peers. I would like my peers to say, I've seen your work. or I, I think your work is really amazing. And I'm like, I've seen your work and your work is amazing. And for that to be genuine, and I do get that. That feels like a success. I'm doing projects that people have seen and heard. So my music is getting out there. Music is meant to be heard. And so it's actually getting heard. And I have opportunities. I have nothing but open road ahead of me. And that feels like that's all of my definitions of success. And yet it's still very difficult for me to say, I am successful. I don't know what that is. It's it's a weird psychology. But there's also, for me, there's also, I don't want to get too complacent. I think as I've talked with a lot of people, the the term success almost is like kind of that one little point when I get to do that one thing. When that arrives, you think, okay, but every time I think I've hit those goals, all of a sudden you get like a little bit of a high, like, oh yes, I got it. But then it's over now what? And I think as I've been talking to people, fulfillment and success are kind of, I think fulfillment is almost the goal that we need to kind of aim for and find out what are those things that make you happy? that bring you joy that's going to last. Oftentimes it ends up being mentoring or giving back or having left something that helps others. You know, it's kind of, you become the sensei, the top of the mountain that people can benefit from the path that you blazed. And those little successes or reaching of goals, as you're describing it, it's kind of like, well, it just keeps moving, right? It's so true. I almost feel like it's not that we should look for other people to tell it to us, but I almost feel like it's on someone else to say, oh, wow you're really successful. You really did that thing. And I'm like, oh, that's amazing that you've said that. But I think you're exactly right. It's really about fulfillment of something. I mean, I've had projects where someone's like, oh my gosh, I totally saw that thing. It was so awesome. And I'm like, that piece of crap? <laughs> you know, I mean, like my score. And I'm like, or I hated that project so much. Or I mean, this sounds negative, but I actually mean this look, look, sometimes it's just a paycheck. Okay. But there's been times where I'm like, I don't feel like that was my best work. I did my best, but I don't really feel like it was my best work. And then that thing ends up being something that people notice. And so again, it's like, to your point, it's not always about what we think of as success more as what do we think is fulfillment. 
because there are some projects that I'm like, wow. And more more projects than not, where I'm like, I just had so much fun doing that project and no one's ever seen it and no one's going to see it. But I had so much fun doing it and I was creatively fulfilling and I met this amazing director and they may or may not go on to make anything ever again. But that project was really, really fulfilling. So it's like success is almost like it's in other people's hands to say, you shouldn't wait for that. You have people given the power, but you're right. It's really what fulfills you. Did you have fun doing it? Did you learn something? Did it challenge you in a way that helped you grow? Did you get a great relationship out of it? Maybe one that's just a simple friendship. Maybe you never work together again, or maybe you do work together again, or maybe all those things, because it's still life. We still have to experience life as well. So if you could rewind the clock back and go have a conversation with yourself, maybe 20 years ago, give yourself some advice, what would you tell that person? Then 20 years ago, I'd probably say, stop wasting time. (laughs) Go faster. I would probably say like, stop wasting time. I probably would have told myself or really tried to work hard on getting myself out of the city that I was in at the time, simply because the opportunities weren't there. Instead, I was kind of having milling about trying to figure out. I mean, I knew what I wanted to do, but I was in the wrong place for it. So I think I would have told myself to immediately have gone immediately back to school instead of taking some gap time. But yeah, I probably would have said stop wasting time. Another thing that I would tell myself is probably like stop being so afraid. And that's just life in general. It's like, wow, what would we do? What could we accomplish even faster if that's needed? You know, it's not always about speed or anything, but what could I have learned starting earlier had I just operated in spite of my fear? as an artist, as a creative. And it's hard what we do. I shouldn't say have no fear. It's just more like, as I just said, it's like, do it anyway. Sometimes the fear doesn't go away. You're just going to have to do it afraid. If I could have learned that a little sooner. <laughs> I, think. I think a lot of people think of opening your mouth and trying to, you know, just being friendly. Even sometimes they think of it like sales or they, you know, they think the word sales is a bad word where you're trying to sell yourself or sell the idea. Hey, I can help with your music to other people. And I'm sure that's a really scary thing to to the point where you don't ever even open your mouth or reach out to some of these people to look for an opportunity. It's true. And I would say in the film and TV world, music world, that's tricky. That's a tricky one because the industry likes humility and confidence. So it's an interesting thing, balance strike, because I'll be really honest and say that sometimes I get emails from people I've, that have just graduated from whatever school they've graduated from. And they'll say, something nice about music, whatever. And we'll just say, here's my skill set, And I'd love to come write for you. I think I could learn a lot from you. And I admire their pluck. (laughs) I admire them putting themselves out there. But to think that somebody can kind of just jump right out of school directly into writing for some, any composer who's already in the industry, it's just a new thing. And also if you want to work for somebody, maybe you should say, not like what you can learn from them, but maybe what they could help you do, kind of what you were saying too. So it's kind of interesting. But at the same time, I do think you are right. I think that if we never put ourselves out there and speak with competence, not, you know, and just, and just say like, this is what I'm good at. I don't know if you need any of this, but I'm really good at, it might not even be a music thing that you feel really particularly good at. Like you could be really good at organization. I have really great organizational skills. Do you need that? Do you need that on your team? I could do that for you. I've had people, interns that are taken on and they're just like, whatever you want. I just graduated and there's things I need to learn, but I'm here for you and however I can make your job easier. And that's just a great attitude. So I would say in specifically in this film, I can't speak for the band world or song singer songwriters, even though I try to sort of dabble in that, but I can't speak in that world. But I can say in this one, there's, it's that fine line between definitely know your worth, always know your worth, always know your worth. But then it's like, 
it's kind of like you also want to come at it and say, hey, I'm going to show up and do the work and I'm going to keep my mouth shut and listen. You know what I'm saying? And like, and listen so I can sort of learn from that situation. But I think it's right. I think it is important just to kind of say, hey, this is what I feel confident about or what I feel competent about. And then try and see if there's anything, any way you can help someone else on their team. Because, you know, on these projects, nobody wants to be stuck in the trenches with jerk or, with, you know, it's a difficult job. It's a difficult job that we do. It's art, commerce, it's creativity and commerce. And that's a really, really difficult combination. Sometimes it works really well. And sometimes you're going to have to put your art, your ego aside. It really has to go aside. That's not what this is about. This is a service industry. It's not just about what I'm feeling or, you know, that kind of thing. But it's about what's needed for that project. As Stephen King has been known to say, sometimes you have to kill your little darlings. And what I'm assuming he meant by that, what I mean by it is like, you know, you, it's like your greatest idea ever. That is such a good idea. And you do it for that picture and you're like, and your person, your director, whoever is like, I'm not feeling that. I don't think that that's the right theme or I don't think that's the right melody or gosh, I was really hoping for a melody. You know, you're like, the melody's right there. It's, it's obvious. It's right. If you're explaining, you're losing, you know, <laughs> it's like, it's yeah. So anyway, all this to say, it's, you have to have, you have to know your self-worth and you have a competence about it. But at the same time, sometimes it's not the right idea and you just have to boot it out and try again. It's not a reflection of your self-worth as a composer. Yeah. As I'm hearing you talk about these different people that have contacted you, I think one of the things that the humility factor really goes a long way, I think. But I see a common thing when I'm talking to different individuals who've made it, I guess, in the industry, if you want to call it that, but they're lifelong learners. It's very rare that you find somebody that thinks they know. I think the more you learn and the more you work in the music industry, the more you realize, at least I feel this way. I just feel like, my gosh, I don't hardly know anything. And even though I've done lots of cool things, I almost feel less capable some days than just because there's so many new tools and it can be overwhelming. And I think those who are wanting to be lifelong learners and reinvest is, I see lots of people, they finish college and they think that was their last payment they'll ever want to put into education. And then you run into other people who spend thousands of dollars sometimes every year, just trying to learn new things and grow. And I think there's definitely something to be said for people who are willing to reinvest in themselves, even after they get out of college for the long run. Yeah, I agree. hundred percent. And you totally find those guys in the industry too. They're the ones who think that they don't have to learn anything else. <laughs> I'm definitely one of them. I'm just like, I don't know what just happened the past few years, but I got a long way to go. <laughs> yeah. and it's one of those where I think you have to consciously set aside time because once you do start working and doing in a job or whether it's in music or anything else, all of a sudden all your time goes, your time can get eaten up really fast. And if you don't consciously say, I'm going to set aside 30 minutes a day and whether it's learning a new piano piece or learning how to work a computer program or whatever it might be. There's just, I think eventually it's going to catch up to you if you aren't reinvesting in yourself. I agree. And we kind of talked about this a little bit, but if you were talking to those interns who are going to reach out to you, so not only being willing to do about anything is email, is it like doing research and studying a bunch of composers and decide what they want to do or who they want to work with? What advice do you give to the students sitting in that USC, the class, really want to do what you're doing? Yeah, I mean, I will say this. I say this a lot, and it's something I, as I sort of thought of over time that I think it's good to work in your arena and then like, let's say out of your arena or above your arena, maybe league is, I don't want to put a hierarchy to it, but working in your league and working above your league. So working in your league would be just what you're ready for, the contacts that you make, the projects that you're getting, you're working on student film, you're working on the things that are good word of mouth is going out about your work. And so you're getting more projects in that way. Again, that's like in your league, doing that kind of thing, always pushing. Again, I don't want to make it seem like stay in your lane kind of thing, but I think it's important to understand the value of working 
from where you are, because there's a lot of things. It's just like life, right? It's like when you were in seventh grade, it's like, maybe you're kind of anticipating, oh my gosh, I'm going to go into like high school, but you're not ready for high school yet. Like you can't do that work. You're just, you're not ready for it yet. And you don't really know that you're not ready for it because you're like, yeah, but I'm in seventh grade. So I'm no longer in sixth grade or even eighth grade or whatever it is. It's like, well, let's say you're in high school. You're like, you're not ready for college yet. And just kind of know that you're not ready for too many things that are outside of your league or above your league, you will fail upwards. So spend the time working where you are. It doesn't mean you can't push boundaries. It doesn't mean you shouldn't punch above your weight. I'm constantly punching above my weight. And sometimes it's just like, cool, that's cute. We'll let you know. That's fine. At least I got in that room and I saw what it was like. Now I can prepare myself. So you should definitely keep pushing. But I just mean, there's a lot of value in working for exactly where you are. You get to figure out what's your computer system going to look like? What's your favorite sample libraries? What's your system of organization, naming file? How do you want to talk with your directors and your you know, showrunners or whatever? How do you want to conduct your business? How do you want to figure out your schedule? How do you want to juggle three or four different things that you're going to have to juggle because you can't possibly make the same enough money on one project? How are you going to work your life work balance? Do those things before you start punching too far above. And then let's just say if you want to be an assistant, which I did, that was a great way. I don't know if I set out to do it, but I was certainly open to doing it. You don't have to be an assistant. It's not for everybody. It's not the only way to do it. But a lot of success in this industry has been made by sort of this apprenticeship, you know, where you become an assistant. And then from there, you can maybe get to do some orchestration work. Or maybe you get to do some clerical things, or maybe you get to do some things that maybe they're not even writing. But then you start to learn as you're working out of your league, then you start to learn how is that composer doing it? Oh, and I don't mean copy what they're doing. I'm saying you're learning how somebody's doing it on a much higher level than you are. And you can say, that's really cool. That's a really smart way of doing that. I wonder if I can apply that to my own projects and you start figuring out, gosh, that doesn't work for me because I don't have enough money for that kind of system thing or whatever it is. So I think that the idea of working in your league is really important. It should not be devalued. And then the idea of working out of your league or above your league, trying to work for somebody who's further along in their career than you are, learning from them, even if you're not working for them, maybe just learn them, hang out and see if you can come to a session of theirs or take them to coffee or that kind of thing and ask them if there's anything you can do for them. And in the meantime, would would they mind answering some questions for you? There are so many ways to be successful. There's so many ways to make a living. When I first started, again, I was a part-time assistant and then a part-time orchestrator. I did the piano lessons. I did, I taught piano lessons. I jumped on all the other teams and I worked on little student films and student projects and 48-hour film festivals and commercials and library music and shorts and indies and all those kinds of things. And to me, I was pretty high on the idea that I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I'm like making a living, not quite all yet just writing, but I'm making a living. I'm doing it. And it's really amazing. There's totally hope. And also now more than ever, there's all a bunch of shows out there. There's a bunch of content makers and they're trying to give people different new shots or newer people the shots. In some ways, I think it's a lot more accessible of a career than it was when I started. I'll never say easy, but I think it's a lot more accessible now than it was when I started. But I think there's also a lot more composers who are trying to get in there than there was when I started. So I don't know if that makes it... There's a... 50 other yeah. people that would love to be in your shoes and they'll do it for less. Yeah. Or, Which should be you know, really for, motivating. It should be right. mo- really motivating because not everybody is just cut out for all of the different facets, but there's also so many different ways to do, you know, I, I have a great composer friend and he, he went to school with me and we, he's just really fantastic. And he just sort of fell into music editing world. And now he's like super, super happy, makes a great living, very successful. Not what he originally started out to be doing, but he's now he's doing this and that's okay. It just spoke to him differently. 
one of the things is, as you're talking about all this, I keep hearing those that are going to be successful. And, and as you're growing, there's this proactivity or you've got to take those steps to learn and do it. And I hear you, you didn't say it out exactly this way, but I'm hearing you need to dive in and try and work at it and do these things. And don't wait for somebody to tell you when you're my assistant, then you can do that thing. Don't be afraid to dive in and try stuff and work at it. Yeah. Uh, if you happen to be an assistant, don't just do whatever your job description is. I mean, you got to be careful. Don't just start writing music, you know. But for instance, if somebody says, hey, you, know, you can take off if you want. Your time is done. You're like, well, is there anything else you need? Are you sure? Is there anything else I can stay after and do? I mean, is there any? Well, I mean, you never know. Maybe like, no, I'm just, we're just going to do like a recording session. And can I just sit and watch? You don't have to pay me. I don't have to do any of those things. And read the room. If they're like, actually, no, this is actually maybe not one of the best times, but I hear you and I'll get you in on something else. Great. Cool. Awesome. But try and go above and beyond what your job description is because you'll learn more and because it will look better. And that person who's hiring you will be like, wow, I really trust that person. Think of it this way too. Those composers that you might be working for, they're just like you. We're, we're all the same. We are all just trying to write good music. We're just trying to please our people. We're just trying to survive. But we are all feeling the same kind of creative struggle. I've been realizing the more projects I do, and some would say the more successful I'm looking, you know, to, but I don't know that I feel as that successful, but I'm basically what I'm realizing is the more time that passes it, the feelings are still the same. They're just, they get a little bit more intense. <laughs> it's, in some cases, like, you know, the struggle is real. It's a difficult industry for so many reasons, but all this to say, if you end up assisting for somebody, believe you me, they are not without the same struggle. They are also going through the, a lot of the same struggles that you might be going through as well. Doing more and always kind of doing more than expected. I think that's some of the best life advice you can give anybody, whether it's music or anything. I, I read a quote the other, I heard it on a podcast or something, but I guess, ben, I think it was Benjamin Franklin said that most men die at age 25. We just wait until about 70, 75 years old until we bury them. And I think as I heard that, I'm like, oh my gosh, if you look at so many people out there and, and music, I think kind of happens a little bit with people where they love music and they it's a fun thing. And then they kind of get in that job or go down that path where, you know, now they're not doing exactly what they thought they were going to do. But I think keeping that fire and love of the things you do is part of what's going to keep you alive for real up until you're 75, whenever it is you do pass away, you know? Yeah, I agree. And I agree. I hate seeing the dreams of people crushed. I talked to so many friends and they've been working in their job for 5, 10, 20 years and they hate it. And the first thing they tell you, well, I get to retire in this many years now. I'm like, I don't even know what that would be like. I enjoy what I'm doing. I don't want to retire. What? <laughs> so. Yeah. I mean, I mean, same here, certainly as a musician, certainly as a composer. I'm like, honestly, the way I see it is like, I don't ever have to retire some professions, you just like, you got to go. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, there are certain professions you just, we're not going to employ you any longer. You know, like you have to retire kind of. I kind of see it as like, oh, I never have to retire. I don't know. But you're right. It's, it's all about doing something that you love for as long as you can. There's the mic drop. Do things that you love. And hopefully that advice helps somebody out there. So Sherry, this is awesome. We're way longer chat than I'd even expected, but I learned a ton. It's been really fun. I feel like I've got a brand new friend. But people want to go check out your music. I know you can go on Apple and you can go iTunes and all over and hear your music if you type in your name. But where should they go to kind of get everything they find out about you? I will say my website, sherrychung.com, is definitely one place to go. It's a bit out of date, but there's certainly things. But I guess it's a good place to do it. If you do have Apple or Spotify or anything, I did have several, which was not normal, by the way, but several soundtrack albums that were just kind of released in this small blast of things. And it was the soundtrack to the second and third seasons of Kung Fu, 
soundtrack to a Peacock show called Based on a True Story. There's a soundtrack to a show that I just did called Gremlins, Secrets it's of the Gremlins. Uh, that was one of them I was listening to. Yeah. <laughs> Got a little and bit then, of a Kung Fu Panda flavor to it, I felt like, on a couple of those. Yeah, on a couple, yeah, for sure. And then the last one, the fourth one that just, that just recently came out is the soundtrack to a film called Happiness for Beginners. And that just was released on Netflix two or three days ago at the time of this podcast. So yeah. It's all out there, Netflix and, and Spotify and all those all those things. So if anyone's interested, I also can be found on social media as well, pretty much just Instagram, I think. I'm hitting up these days, Instagram at Sherry Chung. Awesome. We're going to put all that in the show notes. Thank you so much. And I feel like we need to have another one of these chats because I think there's a whole other area I think we could go that would be really fun for people. Totally. Here. I'm down. I'm down. <laughs> Sweet. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Jason. I appreciate it. Hey, it's Jason here. And I hope you've gotten a lot of value out of this episode. Be sure to check out our show notes to learn more about our guest today. And if you'd like to support our podcast, there's a few things that you can do to help us grow. First, if you hit subscribe, it will help ensure that you don't miss a future episode. Second, if you'll share it with your friends on social media or send it via email or message, it helps us spread the word as well. And third, if you'll leave an honest review, it really helps with the algorithms so that other people can find our podcast. Finding success and fulfillment in the music industry is possible. And I look forward to seeing you on our next episode.